1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including guest Bob Levy. He is, uh, of course, a senior fellow emeritus. At the Cato Institute, former chairman of the Cato Institute, we'll be talking about the affirmative action case that was uh, discussed this week at the Supreme Court. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is November the 2nd and on this day in 1948 in one of the greatest upsets in presidential election history, Democrat incumbent Harry S. Truman defeated His Republican challenger, Governor Thomas E. Dewey of New York, by just over two million popular votes. In the day preceding the vote, political analysts and polls were so behind Dewey that on election night, long before the votes were counted, the Chicago Tribune published an early edition with the banner headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. Harry Truman was thrust into presidency by Franklin D. Roosevelt's death in 1945. Approaching the 1948 presidential election, he seemed to stand a slim chance of retaining the White House. Despite his effective leadership at the end of World War II and the sound vision of the confused post-World War, uh, uh, World, War World, I should say, many voters still uh, viewed Truman as an ineffectual shadow of his former four-term predecessor. He also antagonized uh, Southern Democrats with his civil rights initiatives, most were sure that Dewey would take the White House. In the last weeks before the election, Truman embarked on a whistle-stop campaign across the United States in defiance of his consistently poor showings in the polls. He traveled to America's cities and towns fighting to win over undecided voters by portraying himself as an outsider contending with a do-nothing Congress. Truman, a one-time farmer who was elevated to the pinnacle of American politics, because of his reputation for honesty integrity, won the nation's affection, and he nearly won a second term. Just, uh, I thought, a truly wonderful man. He uh, made, he was thrust like he had a uh, placard on his desk. The, the buck stops there, and it certainly did with Truman. He made some very important and decisive decisions as uh, president of the United States. Also, when he left the presidency, he was uh, sought out by many companies to put him on the, their boards, and he said, you know what, they don't want me, they want the presidency title, the f- past presidency, uh, and uh, I'm not going to serve on any boards. Truly a remarkable man. Harry S. Truman. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis' re-election campaign announced that the governor and the first lady would head, headline the f- Don't Tread on Florida tour up to, leading up to the election. The two will make more than a dozen stops from November the 4th to the 7th with guests joining them at different stops. And, of course, they're going to include all the Ashley Moody, uh, CFO Jimmy Patronis, so Ac- Agriculture Commissioner, uh, and uh, nominee Wilton Simpson. Just a lot of folks will be joining them, and uh, the stops will include Clay County, Broward County, and Brevard County on the 4th. On the 5th, Volusia County, St. Lucie County, Seminole County, and Pinellas County. And on the 6th, Hillsborough County, Sarasota, and then Lee County on the 6th. So that'll be one we we'll want to watch out for if you'd like to see uh, the governor in person. On the 7th, uh, of course, he'll be with Palm Beach County, Orange County, and Miami-Dade County. Don't know if he's going to make a stop at uh, the Trump rally. it be interesting to see with what happens there. Uh, of course, he faces off with uh, Charlie Crist on November the 8th, and it's looking pretty good right now at the state. Well, Democrats are not poised to do well in Florida next week. In fact, it looks like they may not do well in the state for some time to come. Since the 2020 election, Democrats have lost more than 330,000 registered voters in the state, while GOP have, has picked up uh, 331,000 voters in the same period. Uh, the political analyst at uh, News 6 and UCF Professor Jim Clark say the problems can be laid out at the feet of the Florida Democrat Party. It's really depressing for Democrats, Clark said. There are polls showing Republican Governor Ron DeSantis may carry Orange and Miami-Dade counties, two solidly Democrat counties, in the past. The result of this large shift in registrations is that the GOP now has a registration advantage in the state for the first time. As of last month, there were 5.3 million registered uh, Republicans, and just under $5 for Democrats. Voters' registration has been a disaster, said Tom Kennedy, a Democrat National Committee member in Florida. Our message sucks. Can't be any more clear than that. As bad as the news is, even worse is for Democrats who are losing. Republicans have picked up where Trump left off. More than half of their gains in registered voters can be attributed to the 58,000 new Hispanic voters who checked Republican on their forms, Democrats, uh, though all are bleeding support from these communities. The party saw a large net loss of more than 46,000 Hispanic voters. It's also worth noting the Republicans saw a slight but sizable uptick of black registered voters in the past two years, while Democrats lost more than 71,000, a quarter of which came from Miami-Dade. The results of all this is that the Republicans are in a position to win Uh, Miami-Dade County, for the first time in 20 years, the party has picked up 11,000 new voters in the county since 2020, while Democrats have lost nearly 58,000 voters over the same period of time. On top of the registration advantage, the GOP also has a big money advantage. Uh, CNN noted that in 2020, Bloomberg gave $100 million to help Biden win Florida. This year, there's been no outside benefactor coming to the rescue of the Democrats. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis has raised... Nearly two hundred million dollars. The bottom line is, even the Miami Herald doesn't see much hope for the Democrats this year. The president, of course, is coming into town, or did come to town. He scheduled a trip for South Florida on Tuesday. It's a Hail Mary pass. He's going to be supporting Christ, of course, and uh, probably Val Demings. But it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not selling well in Peoria, as they say. That's a pretty downbeat assessment, but it's also a pretty realistic one at this point. Democrats are going to lose bigly in Florida, and there's no reason to think think things will improve for them in the state of uh, by 2024. Well, you know what? They're dying a death of a thousand cuts, mainly self-inflicted. No question about that. Their policies, I think as he said, their policies suck. And by the way, uh, I was looking at real clear politics. I'm right now looking at... What they're looking at and they're suggesting that the uh, election is going to end up with 54 senators uh, in other words a gain of four senators in the midterm elections that's going to include Arizona of course, Blake Masters Georgia Herschel Walker New Hampshire Bolden and Nevada that's pretty interesting be great to see that if that happens how many Democrats are going to uh, how many seats are they going to pick up the answer is none so uh, this, according to Real Clear Politics, which has a pretty good reputation for what they do, is they take all the polls and meld them down into one poll and uh, give that as the response. So we'll see how this all turns out. There's still seven days, and as, the, as they say, you have to run through the tape and make sure that we win these elections. And by we, I'm talking about conservatives. The Republican Party is set to experience a big win in the House of Representatives come election night, gaining a double-digit edge in the lower chamber of Congress. The GOP needs to have a net gain of at least five seats in the House if they wish to take the majority. But predictions released on Tuesday indicate the party may have between 19-seat majority after election night, bringing the total to 236 seats. This estimate is based on if Republican candidates win half of the toss-up races that are in a dead heat, according to Fox News. The majority by the, <clears throat> of the GOP could be a bigger or smaller, depending on the voter outcome of the party. In the best-case scenario for Republicans, the party would leave election night with 249 seats, while the best-case scenario for Democrats would be uh, Republicans to have only 223 seats. Net, though, I mean, <laughs> big win for the Republicans. In both scenarios, the Democrats would still lose the majority in the House, which requires 218 seats from the majority if the Democrats wish to retain power, and they won't. They will we'll need to win two, all 26 toss-up races and pick up another six races that favor Republican candidates. The Republican Party's lead in the 2022 midterm House elections can possibly be attributed to its focus on inflation and crime, while Democrats have focused on abortion rights following the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade earlier this year. Uh, An ABC Ipsos poll conducted October the 28th and 29th found that 26% of those surveyed ranked the economy as the most important issue, while 23% uh, reported inflation was most important. The poll surveyed 729 adults and had a margin error of 3.9%. And while Republicans are expected to take control of the House, the Senate remains up in the air. But as uh, this RealClearPolitics summary uh, suggested could be as many as four new Senate seats for the Republicans. Well, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro on Tuesday did not concede the election. He lost to leftist Lula da Silva in a brief speech that marked his first comments since results were released two days ago. But afterward, Chief of Staff Sico Nogueira told reporters that Bolsonaro has authorized him to begin the transition process. Balancero's address did not mention election results, but he did say he would continue to follow the rules of the nation's constitution. I've always been labeled as an anti-democratic, and unlike my accusers, I've always played within the four lines, uh, referring to a soccer field, the four lines of the constitution. Balancero, flanked by more than a dozen ministers and allies, told reporters in the official residence in the capital of Brasilia, Balanzaro lost Sunday's race by a thin margin, garnering 49.1% of the vote to da Silva's 50.9%. According to the nation's electoral authority, it was the tightest presidential race since Brazil's return to democracy in uh, 1985 and marks the first time Balanzaro has lost an election in his 34-year political career, including seven races for a seat of Congress. Much like former U.S. President Donald Trump, whom Balanzaro openly admires, The far-right incumbent has repeatedly questioned the reliability of the country's electoral system, claiming electronic voting machines are prone to fraud. He's never provided any proof, even though when ordered to do so by the electoral court. This has led many political analysts to warn that Balanzaro appeared to be laying the groundwork to reject election results. Uh, In recent days, and without public statement from Balanzaro, truck drivers and other supporters of his blocked hundreds of roads across the country. Many say the election has been fraudulent, and some called for military intervention and for Congress and the Supreme Court to be disbanded. Well, he's staying, staying within the four lines, as he said, so he wants to follow the Constitution, but he's still not conceding the election. The fact of the matter is it's very unlikely that there was no uh, hanky-panky going on. There must have been some because uh, support him in the uh, uh, in, in Congress, Uh, They all, for the most part, one, actually expanded their authority and uh, influence. So uh, hopefully there will be some sort of investigation and review of the results. Apparently there is no mandatory uh, recount uh, or any kind of recount that's uh, required by the Constitution. But hopefully they'll do the right thing. Be nice. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulab's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly staff has been part of Lullabie's for years. I enjoy their great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lullabie's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Bee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Bee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 4541
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social's a new refreshing social networking platform and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website ChoiceSocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now, we have with us Bob Levy. He is the former chairman for 14 years of the Cato Institute and now senior fellow emeritus in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
2: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. Well, the Supreme Court ad- uh, addressed affirmative action uh, in a couple of cases, uh, actually, to, uh, to review and uh, I found this to be such an important discussion. Can you tell us about the affirmative action cases uh, now before the Supreme Court?
2: The cases are Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and it's consolidated with a similar case involving the University of North Carolina. And the issue is whether to overrule a past case, Grutter v. Bollinger, that was from 2003 and involved the University of Michigan Law School. If that case is overturned, then institutions of higher education might not be able to use race as a factor in admissions. The plaintiffs argue that Harvard and UNC have discriminated against Asians in their racial preference policy. Uh, UNC, of course, is a public university, and so it's bound by the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause. Harvard receives federal funding, and so it's covered by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act which essentially mirrors the Equal Protection Clause.
1: So, Bob, what's the legal framework for affirmative action cases?
2: The Supreme Court applies a uh, so-called strict scrutiny when they test programs that discriminate by race. It's a two-part test. The program has to be designed to achieve a compelling state interest, and it has to be narrowly tailored, which means the program doesn't sweep more broadly than necessary and the same ends uh, couldn't have been achieved without racial preferences. After the Grutter case in 2003, uh, admissions programs that were intended to promote racial diversity on campus were deemed to satisfy this first part of the test. That is diversity is said the court, a compelling state interest. So that means the programs have to meet only the second part of the test. That is, that they're narrow, narrowly tailored. Uh, in the Grutter case, in, again, 2003, the University of Michigan Law School passed the test in the Harvard and UNC cases now before the court. Uh, the court might either overrule Grutter and decide that diversity is not a compelling interest, or the court might determine that Harvard and UNC, that their programs are not narrowly tailored because <clears throat> the schools could have met diversity goals using so-called race-neutral admissions policies.
1: Or one other alternative I'll offer is they find that the whole notion of affirmative action isn't necessary anymore in our society.
2: Yes, that that would be the case if they overturn Grutter and decide that diversity is not a compelling interest because there hasn't been any other compelling interest that has been put forward.
1: Yeah, so interesting. So what's your view of Grutter case and the uh, court uh, that the uh, court might overturn?
2: Well, the, I think the Grutter court and the affirmative action generally implicitly condones four uh, what I think are injustices. One is punishment of individuals to advance group interests. The second, discrimination that often benefits non-victims and harms people who haven't done anything wrong. The third is preferences For minorities who may be relatively wealthy and may have endured a few of life's and only a few of life's hardship and presidential treatment of other minorities and of whites uh, who may be relatively less fortunate. So, you, you know, you have proponents of affirmative action who also point to the benefits of a diverse workforce in the corporate world and in the military the corporations in the military branches that want more minority executives, they can hire graduates of private universities. Private universities, most of them, can implement affirmative action without raising any constitutional concerns, or the corporations can recruit inner-city talent, or they can fund scholarships for minority uh, applicants, and the business and military can draw from the vast majority of even public universities that admit just about any applicant. So there's no reason to believe that minority graduates of these universities uh, would not be qualified for military leadership and corporate leadership positions. You don't have to go to Harvard to be successful in life.
1: So how can the Constitution be colorblind in the face of racial discrimination?
2: Well, plainly, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was intended uh, in major part to target racial discrimination. So if, you know, Justice John Marshall Harlan in his famous uh, dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, he, he used the term colorblind constitution. If he meant to rule out race consciousness, then I think clearly he overreached. We're going to use race conscious remedies. But if, as he explained in his opinion... If he meant that the colorblind Constitution rules out race classifications, then he think he's more in line with our current Chief Justice, John Roberts, uh, recent guidance. Uh, in the 2007 case, he said the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So my prediction is the Roberts Court is not going to dispute that the Equal Protection Clause and Title VI allow race-conscious remedies that are intended to address past discrimination. But the court, I think, is likely going to hold that it's unconstitutional to classify persons by race and extend benefits to those persons merely because they fall within the racial favored group. Racial classifications to achieve diversity... Uh, without a showing of actual or potential individualized discrimination, I think is not going to be permitted.
1: You know, we should have a meritocracy. It's just unbelievable. I remember, the Naples Daily News uh, suggested with great pride that they had the, a very diverse workforce, but their product stinks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> wouldn't you prefer to have a, the people say, "You know, we've uh, cannibalized all the best newspapers in the United States to bring you the very best product we can." No, but instead they're bragging about diversity and in their stinking papers, so it's unbelievable. Yeah, well,
2: see how many papers that sells.
1: (laughs) So so why don't you think diversity is a compelling state interest?
2: Well, I and others have expressed a lot of reservations about the alleged uh, benefits of diversity. You know, if it's a compelling interest, why not diversity? By, By other means, like religion, nationality, socioeconomic status, geography. And most important, how about diversity by viewpoint? Mm -hmm. You know, according to a recent poll, Harvard's class of 2025 is 72.4% liberal and 8.6% conservative. And I suspect that the faculty has uh, very similar leanings. And there are lots of other uh, questions about diversity. Uh, Why do some universities that tout diversity
1: also allow
2: racially segregated dorms and, and graduation ceremonies? And how would a Pedro Goldberg, who has, a let's say, a Hispanic mom and a Jewish dad, how would he measure on the diversity scale? Would Harvard try to ensure that he gets in or try to ensure that he's kept out? And, and it's not only blacks that have experienced uh, discrimination. So how do we select <clears throat> which groups are to receive uh, preferential treatment? when we let diversity trump academic criteria, uh, then colleges are often pushed into either lowering their academic standards or failing some of these less qualified students who are admitted as part of an Affirmative Action uh, program. And the, the racial preferences intended to promote diversity haven't actually increased overall black enrollment. What they have done is simply redirected some Blacks who are favored by these programs to elite universities at the expense of the other universities uh, where those those students might otherwise uh, have gone. And I think most important, and Justice Thomas brought this up in the oral argument, diversity has never been defined. Mm-hmm. What precisely are the educational benefits of a diverse student body? How do we know when the goal of diversity has been accomplished. I remember Justice O'Connor, in the Gruder case, speculated that 25 years might be enough time. But the diversity proponents haven't accepted that time frame, even as we now are approaching the time when the 2028, that would be 25 years, when that graduating class is about to be admitted. So there are a number of questions regarding diversity, and I think the court's going to get rid of it.
1: It would be a great thing because I think affirmative action is a pox on our democracy and our republic right now. This thought came to mind. I don't know if it's relevant, but, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, classified herself as an Indian, American (laughs) Indian, to to garner uh, more favor and uh, opportunity in her career. And of course, yeah. And
2: that's you, you know that's a ridiculous but predictable outcome of uh, implementing these kinds of racial preferences.
1: Yeah, Bob Levy again, chairman of the Cato Institute, oh I should say former chairman of the Cato Institute and uh, now a uh, senior fellow emeritus in constitutional studies. Bob, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. He's a former, uh, he's a professor, I should say, and author of a terrific read. It's called Josepha Savaz. That and more right here in The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, building a 44,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. Going to be absolutely beautiful. And also bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now and find out more. The website is Gulf Shore Playhouse. Dot org. We have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy.
3: Excuse
1: me. So, Andy, usually we start our discussions on Wednesday morning with good news. Do you have any good news for us?
3: I think there is a, a bunch of good news stories out there, Bob, and I think many of them are really good news because of the extended implication. For example, uh, in New York, the Supreme Court, Reagan State, all employees who were fired for being unvaccinated with back pay. Now, that in itself is a a good story, obviously. Uh, But more than that, it indicates the court's willingness to really view the vaccine, theoretic vaccine for what it is, we actually have no vaccine. What the what is called a vaccine is a therapeutic agent. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to see the. By the way, that isn't what the court said. I am adding that to the to the discussion. But I think the Supreme Court of New York to do what they did is a strong indication that the courts are recognizing the inappropriateness of government intrusion or even private sector intrusion uh, on employees' rights uh, because of of uh, non vaccination. Uh, another ruling that is is similar to this in the sense that the courts have gotten involved, and I think it's a, a, a good uh, portending of what may lay ahead. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that early ballots cast in the early uh, uh, voting process that are not signed or dated cannot be counted. Now... Up to this point, for the most part, there are some exceptions, for the most part, courts have not gotten uh, involved with the actual debates of these of these voting procedures and processes. So to see the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that ballots that were submitted uh, in the early balloting process that were not signed to date, cannot be counted, I think is a, a, a very good sign, especially if it, if it indicates a general willingness of the courts to become involved with uh, illegalities in election
1: bob i think that's absolutely true just a comment on uh, your previous uh comment i was encouraged by the fact that the courts understood and and uh did a deep dive into the therapeutics or into the vaccines uh because you know that's kind of a black box for people in the legal business so uh you know to come up with that that conclusion i thought i, th- I think demonstrated uh, i think great thoroughness on the part of the court.
3: I, I totally agree. I mean, if you, if the regulation states that you must be vaccinated and in fact there is no vaccine, then you can't violate that, that regulation. So I, I think that's an important consideration. I think it's been well documented uh, many, many times over. Uh, except for the liberal media, of course, that the uh, uh, Moderna and Pfizer uh, and Johnson & Johnson, uh, things that are called vaccines are not vaccines, Bob. A couple of more good news stories before we move on. Um, The early voting in Florida favors the Republicans. Now, this doesn't sound like a a big story in itself. It's a a good news story if you're Republican, obviously. Uh, But normally, Florida, the early voting, uh, normally heavily favors the Democrats. So I think when we're looking at that early voting result in Florida— uh, again, if I can extend this to a uh, a larger environment, the national environment, this may portend a very, very significant win overall for the Republicans, and of course, most people are predicting it. I uh, I, I get worried with that kind of predictions, but I, I think it looks that way. Uh, the Democrats have brought in Barack Obama as their uh, as their uh, <clears throat> as their uh, knight to come to the rescue here. Uh, if we look at the history of Barack Obama's success in supporting candidates, going back uh, even during his presidency and immediately post-presidency, uh, Obama has shown no ability uh, to successfully swing votes for any candidate. So uh, I think it looks good for the Democrats on paper, but in terms of the historic reality of, uh, of the Obama impact, it has not been there historically. One more piece of good news is the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, uh, endorsed um, uh, Dr. Oz. Now, that again is, doesn't sound like a, a big story, but the Gazette has historically always supported the Democratic candidate. In this case, the Gazette said they've just had enough as it pertains to the candidacy of John Fetterman. So, uh, again, a story that maybe, and this is maybe being too optimistic, but maybe the media is beginning to see uh, the reality of this situation, and maybe the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is a uh, is a forerunner of a, of a national trend. I hope that's the case. At
1: least. Kind of a uh, canary in the coal mine. So, Andy, uh, all your comments here have been very encouraging with regard to election results. Although I, I many times when we have our discussions, I tend to be more optimistic. You sometimes see the, uh, the dark side of the situation. Any concerns?
3: Uh, just legality, Bob, as always. Yeah, I mean I precede all of my comments with you normally at least uh, with the uh, pre- presumption of, of legality. But if we look at the way it should turn out, by all recent polling uh, in, in the uh, Senate race in Florida, Rubio's up by eight. Herschel Walker is now up by 1.6. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin is up by 3. Oz is only behind Fetterman now by 1.3. But that is a dramatic increase in, in Oz's position. Uh, if we look at normal polling variations in Pennsylvania, Oz will win the election by at least 2.5 votes. Uh, Vance uh, in Ohio is up by 2, uh, Bud is up by 4.5 in North Carolina. Lexalt is up by 1 in Nevada. A uh, lake is up by one. Stacy Abrams is down by eight. O'Rourke is down by eighteen, a uh, thirteen rather, uh, to Abbott. Uh, now, I think if if uh, Abrams is down by eight, I think it shows uh, that there's a a, a wisdom uh, in Georgia uh, that is not being given credit for. And that particularly pertains to the African-American community, which has moved dramatically, not certainly in a majority, but certainly moved dramatically towards the, uh, the Republican side of the ledger. O'Rourke down by 13 indicates another non-candidacy for O'Rourke. So uh, by every polling indication, uh, by everything that I uh, immediately referenced, uh, it certainly looks like it's going to be a a, a red tidal wave. I um, mean, uh, I know I'm not normally that optimistic, uh, if I'm yeah. optimistic at all, but in this case. Uh, pending the potential of illegality, Bob, and I hate to keep bringing that up, but it's uh, it has to be talked about. Uh, I think there'll be a tremendous red wave in uh, next in next week. I think we'll take the House easily, take the House, and I think we'll go fifty-three forty-seven in the Senate. Uh, that is my prediction on the Senate. So uh, I think we're looking at some good news ahead. Uh, if it doesn't work out that way. Uh, if in some strange way the the American people um, do not respond as, as they're showing they are now at this point and all circumstances indicate they should, it turns into a referendum on the American people. In other words, if these elections do not turn out as they're currently polling... If, the, if they eventually walk in and pull the lever for for other than those candidates, then essentially I think we're looking at a, uh, a an American people that are probably beyond the point of being saved. Well,
1: I don't think that is the case, and my personal, view, <laughs> my, my personal view is people are sick and tired of inflation and crime and all the other things that are going on, and uh, they want a new broom to sweep clean uh, what's going on in America. We're going to take a little break. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden broadcast a uh, network
0: stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network The Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Gaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, my previous guest was Bob Levy, uh, former chairman of the Cato Institute. And uh, we talked about affirmative action, and I know that you're in the college setting as a professor. Wonder if you have any comments on the Supreme Court's uh, review of this situation. Yeah,
3: let me start someplace else. I had uh, made, uh, been involved with several public debates back at my, my college. Uh, back in the early 90s, late, late 80s perhaps, uh, on affirmative action, and that was a point in time when I, a professor could publicly debate that and be against it, as I, as I was on constitutional grounds. Uh, if we look at the current Supreme Court decision, I, I think they will rule against the, uh, the race-based admissions policy of Harvard and North Carolina. I'm, I'm guessing Bob Levy uh, perhaps indicated the same thing, yep. just based on a 6-3 to three prior, on the record, um, a negative towards affirmative action as a concept. Uh, I think it's a very important decision. Presuming how the final wording comes out on that decision, uh, it. Uh, it should extend to beyond just these two specific circumstances of Harvard and North Carolina. It should extend to all admissions policies at all colleges and should extend, if Worded in the appropriate manner to all hiring practices everywhere. Uh, so again, I think this is a uh, decision that's long been in coming. I know that um, uh, Roberts has indicated almost since the advent of his becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court that he had an ultimate intent uh, to, in fact, uh, create rulings on affirmative action. Uh, I'm certainly uh, glad to, uh, to have them, have them finally finally get there, Bob.
1: Well, you know, your reach was further than I was imagining, but I think that would be just absolutely fabulous if the Supreme Court were to say, you know, and guess what? Affirmative action has no place in the workplace either. Uh, that would be certainly extending way beyond the, the, the uh, intent of these two cases, but uh, I agree with you. It's been a pox in our society. We ought to get rid of it.
3: Well, I think many people really don't understand even what affirmative action is. It, uh, it sounds rather benign or innocuous on the surface. The words affirmative action <clears throat> seem to have no no negative implication. But if we look at this, we go back to the uh, the origin of affirmative action. The, the, the very term affirmative action uh, was first uh, used by, by John Kennedy uh, during his presidency, of course. Uh, but John Kennedy was just saying there should be some attempt to find and uh, assess the potential for African-American hires in the workplace. It had no implication of, of preference uh, as a derivative of that. As a matter of fact, uh, JFK came out strongly against uh, racial, uh, racial-based preferences in any environment,
1: uh, and yet
3: he's often cited as being an advocate of affirmative action. How it developed as the... Uh, Equal Employment Opportunity had its advent in the early 60s, which is everyone agrees that the best person for a job should get the job. That is what Equal Employment Opportunity says. Equal employment opportunity failed to close the gap between the number of African Americans employed as compared to the number of whites employed. So it was, in other words, it wasn't working to do what they wanted it to do, was to produce a an equal outcome. Now, in the early 70s, they then moved towards what we now call affirmative action. In affirmative action, there is a uh, there is no intent to monitor whether any. Discrimination or active bigotry has taken place. It has nothing to do with that, just for your audience that thinks it does. It's never even cited in affirmative action cases. Affirmative action is a, is, is a statistical uh, number. It's a disparate impact. In other words, in any environment where blacks in 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 an environment that has a positive implication, Uh, if blacks perform at a lower level or show up at a lower level than whites, that is a negative disparate impact, which is a de facto case of discrimination. Not measured discrimination, but just de facto discrimination. So what affirmative action does, it eliminates the the potential of even addressing discriminatory cases and just deals with statistical variance. Now, this is certainly not not acceptable. I've had discussions with uh, some very uh, prominent people. One, uh, perhaps the most that I can recall, uh, was head of the psych department at a major university. I was talking to her about affirmative action. I said, look, many of us on the right could possibly, I wasn't saying I was, but could possibly support economic affirmative action. In other words, if someone wants to say in government, we want to give uh, people in abject poverty a hand up, perhaps we could be persuaded that that might be a good thing. Uh, she, in fact, said she could not even emotionally deal with the potential of, of anything other than racially based affirmative action. Uh, so I think that indicates that the nature of this, this is a, 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 a process that has taken such a deep emotional hold on the left uh, that I, I really, uh, I'm very interested, first of all, to get it passed and the wording being appropriate. Uh, beyond that, I'm very interested to see what the reaction will be in the streets of America uh, once affirmative action is declared to be unconstitutional.
1: Well, you know, we're we're kind of a, uh, messing around here with the symptoms as opposed to the root causes of what's going on. Seems to me the solution for, for the concern is based on the school choice, school curriculum, you know, all the things that create the environment for learning and for, for excelling in, uh, in life. Uh, we're totally ignoring that and we're saying, well, people who are not well prepared in life, well, they should be able to have an equal opportunity and a job. That makes no sense.
3: Well, it makes no sense in the universities either. If we look at the graduation rate for African Americans, <coughs> excuse me, their, their overall nationwide graduation rate is 40%. In, uh, in for-profit uh, colleges, Uh, It is only half of the white graduation level. So what's happened with affirmative action is schools have brought into their systems... Uh, people who were essentially not qualified for those systems. Yep. Now, they might have performed well at a lower level college or a, a middle level college, but when they're brought into the elite universities, I think it does them a disservice. It does certainly the the, the students alongside of them a disservice. Uh, but, you know, I, even if this thing goes through with the Supreme Court as you and I are discussing, uh, the, the schools could still work around the, uh, the absence of racial based preference merely by eliminating all of the uh, uh, the, uh, the, the filters that are used that right. typically have a negative impact on African Americans. For example, they can eliminate uh, the, uh, the SATs. They can eliminate the GPAs coming out of high school. So anything that would be an objective measurement, if they were just to eliminate those in their admissions process, it would produce immediately Uh, a positive uh, implication for African-Americans without in fact saying that they're uh, in a racially based uh,
1: preference system. Bob, So interesting. Andrew Joppa. Again, we're going to take a little break, Andy. Can you stick around? I'll be here. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Come back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can visit the website the FGA to find out more. We continue the conversation with Professor Andrew Joppa. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good to be with you. Thank you, Andy. So uh, uh, things are pretty unclear about what happened with Paul Pelosi. they kind of uh, covering, it seems like a cover-up. They could release the body cam and, you know, different information, but they, they don't seem to want to do that. I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about that. Uh, let me just make a,
3: a, a quick comment about what you talked to me about briefly uh, off uh, off air, which was the, the um, oil company profit situation, very simply for your audience, and I think most of them are astute to immediately identify what I'm going to say, but we have to always measure profit levels against the, the investment. In other words, what is the return on investment? If we look at ExxonMobil, for example, they have $350 billion in assets. So if, they, if they're at a 10% return on investment, that's a profit level of $35 billion, But they're not at that level. They're about a, about a 6.5% at best return on investment right now uh so you always have to measure the uh the amount being made on on the amount being risked, the return on investment uh and so this is always left out of the discussions particularly when they're being handled to uh uh, to manipulate the public by using big numbers 10 15 20 30 billion they throw these numbers around like they're in they have no context the context bob is return on investment
1: that's a great point and of course uh (laughs) President Biden has no idea how these things work, but the irrespective, he's like operating in a, in a whole cone of ignorance, and which is unfortunate because he kind of looks f- foolish when he makes his comments about you know, <laughs> about gouging the public with the profitability or the gas stations having to give up uh, some of their profits. Unbelievable. Well,
3: so- I mean, the, the comments from the left have become increasingly just insane, I I like to find another word for them, but I, I can't. They're they're so detached from reality, you know, right. measured reality. Now, uh, certainly, they're either insane or they're they're willing, uh, wilfully lying. I mean, probably that's the case, actually. Uh, so, I mean, we're seeing more and more of these outlandish statements uh, that are taking place. Yeah. Uh, you you were talking about the Paul Pelosi situation. You can look at that uh, as an immediate example of that of that exact point. Uh, I read the Atlantic. The Atlantic, and I've been getting it for many years. It's a uh, it's a leftist uh, publication. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But they uh, they essentially referred to the Republicans as ghouls, as being people who enjoyed violence and enjoyed death. And uh, the Democrats have always been very compassionate towards the uh, the violence done to Republicans without even uh, citing the, uh, the the Steve Scalise shooting. Uh, he did in the article refer to the. Uh, attack on Rand Paul, but minimized it. So there was a, a little altercation between Rand Paul and his neighbor, uh, without any indication that Rand Paul has gone through surgeries. Uh, he had five cracked ribs. Uh, I think two or three were displaced in this process.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: so Rand Paul was seriously injured. His life might have been put in jeopardy with a, uh, a little more impact. Uh, they estimated the impact on his body as the same as an, uh, an air cra- a car crash at 25 to 40 miles an hour. Uh, so they they minimize that. Uh, but right now with the Paul Pelosi thing, uh, of course, the, the very uh, it could be easily anticipated. They would blame MAGA Republicans for the attack on, on Paul Pelosi. Uh, let me, I have more to say about that. Let me just get some more of your thoughts,
1: it. Well, um, to me, what just doesn't add up is that somehow, someway, the police arrived. The alarms had not gone off. It was actually Paul Pelosi who had made the phone call saying his friend David is, was in the house and he was concerned about it. Uh, they, they arrive. They both have a hand on a handle. And while they're there, uh, the the this uh, the suspect uh, hits Pelosi in the head with a hammer. He ends up being hospitalized. I mean, where where were the alarms? I mean, it, uh, there's a number of questions about how this just doesn't add up as a, as a n- narrative about what occurred. And yet uh, now they're taking it to federal court, which is going to probably um, limit the amount of information we're going to find out and how, what the public is going to know about this.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, the police report has changed multiple times since it was first uh, <clears throat> first submitted. Um, for example, uh, and I think there's a conflict that exists. They said that Paul Pelosi answered the door. And at the same time, they found him in an immediate struggle with Deneb, uh over the over the hammer. Uh, so obviously, both of those things could not have taken place simultaneously. Uh, if Pelosi did answer the door, why didn't the police immediately provide him with protection? Right. If it wasn't Pelosi that answered the door, as was indicated in the original report, an unnamed third person answered the door, but they changed that to Pelosi answered the door. Uh, so, you know, and then, uh, you know, Denabe is a well-known... Uh, a notice the advocate he's in his skivvies and now Paul Pelosi's in his skivvies, which, you know, uh, certainly is not inappropriate at that time of the morning. But uh, certainly this, the is a is a strange character, mentally deranged. Uh, he has supported many causes. He was a, a BLM advocate, a CRT advocate. He was an advocate of the January 6th process. So, I mean, he's he's been all over the place. But obviously he is a seriously deranged man. Now, Pelosi referred to him as David, my friend. Now, uh, let's let's go on Pelosi's side. Pelosi's side this. He might have just been trying to uh, to, uh, to calm down the situation by referring to, to him as his friend. Now, why a, a person who was obsessed with damaging uh, Paul Pelosi would allow him into the bathroom, to go to the bathroom, allow him to make a phone call, the questions are just uh, unlimited. And as you're indicating, Bob, where are the videos? Where are the, uh, the police body cams? Where is anything? And we've heard the reports about the seriousness of the accident uh, or the uh, assault on, on Pelosi. Uh, I, I'm going to say something I certainly don't know. But do do we have actually a uh, a secondary proof of the extent of the injuries at this point we do not yeah. could they fake the seriousness of the injury to uh, to produce a a political issue in their minds Uh, certainly possible. Matter of fact, I hope for Paul Pelosi's sake, it is possible. I hope they have overstated the extent of the injuries for political purposes.
1: So, you know, in the absence of information, we tend to make stuff up. There's no question about that. And so that's that's why we should inform the American public about exactly what happened in these circumstances. And so in my mind, here's what I've made up. This stranger comes into the place somehow, some way, and uh, uh, Paul Pelosi answers the door and he says, oh, My name is Paul. What's your name? Is it David? <laughs> <You know? laughs> At two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> At two o'clock in the morning. I mean, this makes no sense. So uh, it ends up the police uh, showed up. Well, oh, you know, they, this is a probably one of the most heavily guarded areas. That we're talking about the th- third most po- powerful person that, uh, by elected office in the United States. So why did it take a phone call in order to uh, bring out uh, law law enforcement? They're usually, and, and
3: Pelosi apparently had to talk in some sort of a code to the uh, the nine one one operator because apparently Dene was listening to him while he allowed him to make a phone call to somebody unknown. Just to, it's it's an absurd situation. Just just to mentally imagine this today fellow walking down the streets of San Francisco with his underwear on, carrying a hammer. <laughs> uh, you know, and this is uh, you know. Maybe in San Francisco they see that and they, they think it's just the norm. So I, I can't <laughs> say, but uh, the whole situation just just smacks of a a circumstance that even if it occurred uh, in some form, as they indicate, certainly they've exaggerated the implications of it and changed, changed the facts uh, to fit the p- political narrative, uh,
1: No question doubt it. So, Andy, just I always appreciate your commentary here in the, on the show, and I look forward to visiting with you again at Lullaby's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center, always our favorite place to have breakfast. I really appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Lulabee's,
3: show. Lullaby's the best diner, not only in Naples, but I've that I've
1: ever been. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. We've got great guests for tomorrow's show, including Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, Uh, Dr. George Markovich, my orthopedic surgeon, will be joining us, as well as the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, who always has interesting things to say about what's happening around the world and here in Naples on the Paradise Coast. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. It's one of the ways we build our audience, and in addition to that, support our advertisers. Couldn't do the show without them. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast, or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.